Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, the weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 25, and we're recording on Friday, October 25th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're the editors of BookRiot.com. 25 episodes. 25, man. No one said we would make it. Actually, that's not true. I just wanted to say that. Yeah, I feel like should now I, I should sing like that Shania Twain, <laughs> looks like we made it song. Is it too Wait, early that for Shania that? Shania Twain, looks like we've made it? The, I thought that was uh, like from the 70s. Well, there's a Shania Twain song about like, isn't it impressive that we stayed together? Uh, wait, you mean there's a country song about relationships? There is. Are you sh- I'm shocked. I know. I'm shocked Brace to hear yourself. It. It's great. Um, I'm going to wait until episode 50 to do my uh, rendition of I'm Going to Love You Forever. Uh, forever we may have to make Amen. that an after dark. We have to have a tasty <laughs> beverage to go along there will, with that. Yeah, we need bourbon for that. All right, let's do some follow-up. Um, this week, and Jeff and Rebecca are stupid. Um, LAUGHTER uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is set in Alabama, not Mississippi. Apparently, I said that when we were talking last week about the most famous books set in each state, um, and I flipped Alabama and Mississippi. So I'm sorry to whom, whomever I offended uh, with my uh, mistake there. And then Rebecca was silly. I was silly. Because um, what was it? Haldor Laxness yes. is the only... Icelandic Nobel laureate, not only in literature, but all fields. And we had said, and by we, I mean you, yeah, had, said, had said that there were others. So we just wanted to uh, clarify those things in case you're on Jeopardy someday. I'm and, sorry, and you, Iceland. And, <laughs> yeah. I thought you had more Nobel laureates. Yeah, we did. Had. We gave you more credit than you deserved. Sorry about that. Thanks for correcting us and properly underestimating you. Um, and But also... Someone tweeted at us when, uh, in response to that show that there is an Iceland writer's retreat. So if you are a writer or interested in the arts, um, especially ones with words, you should check out IcelandWritersRetreat.com. And it is in Reykjavik this April. Um, and you know what? I hear Reykjavik is beautiful in April. Yes, go to the land of having more books published and read and written than anywhere else. Yeah, sounds, that's And that right. sounds inspiring. Uh, you can and soak in geothermal hot springs. You can meet Book Riot contributor Johan. Yeah. Well, is he going to be there? <laughs> maybe. Oh, maybe. Okay. I'm committing him to it now. But you know what? Who else is going to be there? Geraldine Brooks. Ooh. Susan Orlean. Uh, this is like a legit yeah, thing. Yeah, right. Ian Reed. Uh, some travel writers you may have heard of. Uh, so, the, you know, it's not, just, it's not just Iceland, though. Iceland would be enough for me. Uh, anyway, sure. the, the continuing tradition of great Icelandic uh, literary culture continues apace. Um, and we also want to mention, too, before we get into the main of the show, we're doing this quarterly box. 
And Rebecca's been running the show, so I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about it. Uh, sure. So if you know Birchbox or other subscription services where you pay a fee, and then once a month or once a quarter, you get a box of awesome stuff. Uh, we've been working with a company called Quarterly to do just that. So for 50 bucks, once a quarter, we'll send you a box that contains at least one book that uh, Book Riot contributors have read and loved. I uh, can't tell you what this first book is going to be, but it's one that about a dozen of us have read. And, and I'm reading it right it. now. I'm doing my homework for oh, it. Are you? Yeah, I am. I'm, oh, I'm super excited about yeah. that. Um, we've read it. We've nerded out over it. We're working with the author and the publisher to create something cool that m- will make the book something that you couldn't get anywhere else. And That's then right. the boxes will also contain a bunch of other, you know, cool sort of reading life accessories, book fetish type stuff. If you follow us at uh, bookriot.com and you know our book fetish series is one of the most popular things that we do. Uh, the first box uh, it has a subscription period open until November 29th and it'll ship in early December so you can give yourself the gift of excellent book mail Mm -hmm. uh, or let a friend know that that's something that you might like for the holidays and you can find out more about it at quarterly.co slash products and Book Riot is right there at the top of that page right next to Ice Tea's wife Coco. (laughs) Always where we've longed to be. It really is. This is the only time in my life I'm probably going to be like (laughs) right up against Coco and I will take it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, Rebecca's been doing most of the work. Yeah, we've had, but we've, we've had been, a lot of fun deciding what to put in. We've been out for about a week and a half with it now. We've had about 300 folks subscribe That's to right. it That's already. Right. We're pretty so excited. get on this train, folks, before it pulls out of the station. Um, all right, let's do our first sponsor. Yeah, so If I'd Known You Were Coming by Kate Milliken is back this week as a sponsor. Uh, It's from the University of Iowa Press. It's a debut collection of 12 short stories that are about what can happen when the uninvited guest of our darkest desires comes to call. Um, I usually try to put these synopses into my own words Mm -hmm. for the books that sponsor the show, but that was so good that I just don't think I could do better. If any broke. Um, yeah, it's great. That's pretty uh, Stories about desire, betrayal, love, regret, and family. Uh, and as I've been sort of looking at this book and, and thinking about what it might remind me of, uh, uh, Laura Vandenberg writes great short stories. And uh, one of her collect- her first collection is called What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us. Uh, it's it's also quiet and about these same kinds of things. And, and I think that If I'd Known You Were Coming by Kate Milliken is going to scratch that same itch. Uh, if you're into short stories and, and you like them to be packed with feeling uh, and with exploration of our lives, you know, in a, in a shorter amount of time, I think it's a tough thing to write a really excellent short story. And, and by all accounts, If I I Known You Were Coming is an excellent debut collection. So check out short stories, check out a new writer, support a small university press. You can do a lot of great things. And support things. the show. Yeah, and if support I known, the show. If I Known You Were Coming by Kate Milliken. So thanks and so much for sponsoring the show. Yeah, there will be a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, check it out. Okay. Big news this Big morning. Big news this morning. We're, we're usually court on Thursday mornings, but we're delayed today for reasons that are too boring to expound upon. But that did mean we got to catch a big fish in this morning news net. Boy, that's a bad metaphor. I'm so sorry <laughs> to humans everywhere for that. The morning news net. <laughs> the, morning, the morning news net. Um, so Amazon's publishing, uh, they, they have over the last couple of years, really 2011 is really where they started making a splash mm-hmm. um, of trying to be not only a retailer of books, but a publisher of top-level titles. And news comes this morning that they're scaling way back. Way back. Um, Larry Kirschbaum, who was the signal hire, who for a while was, before working at Amazon, was the president of the Time Warner Book Group, um, came over to Amazon to be in charge of their division over there, of their adult imprints. Um, He's leaving. 
there's a bunch of other layoffs. Um, and it looks like it looks like this is one of the few times we get to see Amazon tuck its tail between its legs and run home to mama. Yeah, and you know, like this this news just broke maybe half an hour. Yeah, ago. so we're still learning um, more about it. So we're still learning about what's going on, and of course, the next several days will be filled with mostly speculation about what this might mean. Um, Amazon will be keeping its specialty imprints open. Uh, those include Thomas and Mercier, which publishes mysteries and thrillers, and the sci-fi and fantasy imprint Forty Seven North, along with their romance imprint called Mont Lake. Uh, but there's some interesting there's some interesting speculation already happening uh, here, and one of those things is that when Amazon Publishing uh, launched and made this announcement a couple of years ago in 2011 that that they were really going to go big, Barnes and Noble said that it would not stock titles that were published by Amazon, you know, because this is a rival, uh, and most independent booksellers said that they would follow the same policy. Uh, Amazon, you know, persevered in the way that Amazon does and pressed on and and carried on publishing books and putting them out. They got some big names. They got um, Penny Marshall, uh, whose memoir, My Mother Was Nuts. Uh, she's a, Penny Marshall is a film director, a producer, and an actress. And My Mother Was Nuts is the first big title that they published. They also got um, Timothy Ferris, who wrote the four-hour work week and something else related to four. And, <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and then he, he wrote The Four-Hour Chef, which is the simple path to cooking like a pro, uh, learning anything, and living the good life. And Amazon published uh, that one, and Ferris said that he he knew that he was up against some challenges uh, by choosing Amazon, but that he liked their progressive approach to things. So, so one of the pieces of speculation now is that this refusal by Barnes and Noble and Amazon and by Barnes and Noble and Indies to stock Amazon published books uh, was effective, um, mm-hmm. and it's a reminder that Amazon has thirty. Do like you 30% think that's what it is? What do you well, think? Why, why do you think this happened? You know. I am not, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I think we actually, from where I sit in the industry and from what we do, um, I think that Amazon does a great job selling books. They Mm -hmm. certainly know how to reach um, customers, but their publicity engine is not spectacular. Not Um, great. We hear all the time, bloggers and, and, you know, book review editors hear all the time from publicists at um, traditional publishing houses about the books that they're working on that have just come out. They send us um, galleys to look at for review. They send us e-samples. And for the last two years, um, you know, that Amazon has been doing this, like, I don't know any blogger who's had regular contact with somebody from Amazon Mm. publishing, uh, publicizing their books. Amazon, I think maybe has not figured out how you do that piece of it. Um, and certainly there was resistance in like mainstream traditional book reviewing to covering titles that were Amazon published because yeah. of all the politics. Um, so if you're not reaching out to bloggers and people who review and talk about books online and you're not getting coverage from like the New York Times or the Washington Post because they're well aware of, of the politics here too, then then who are you publicizing these Wait, books to? Wait, Rebecca, are you suggesting that if no one knows about your books and they're not available to buy, it's hard to sell them? It is a. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? That just, sounds you know, like a pretty good combination for failure. Take to a me. minute and let that earth-shattering revelation yeah. sink in. Well, because we, we've we've learned. When, when did that stat come out about you know fifty percent of people who go to buy a book on Amazon already know what they're looking for? Apparently, uh, in the last year or so. Yeah, in the I last think. year or so. I wish you know we should just have like a bulletin board of stuff we refer to all the time because that's a really key. 
mm-hmm. stat that we often bandy about when we're talking about this stuff. So that's a problem because if you only can find it on Amazon and half the people going there already know what they're looking for. And Amazon, even though it feels like the 800-pound gorilla, it's only like a 250-pound gorilla when it comes to the aggregate book sales in America. So it's not like if it gets on Amazon. And because we all know browsing Amazon is, is terrible. It is. It, it's not a great, fun experience. And here's another thing. If The 4-Hour Chef and Penny Marshall's memoir are headlining books for your... I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I like Laverne and Shirley as much as the next guy, but is that ex- are those exciting books? Like, tell me, tell me I'm wrong about that, but those feel like a couple of turkeys that try to headline a new publishing imprint. Am I well, wrong? Tim, Maybe I'm wrong. You know, Penny Marshall, I don't... I think Penny Marshall has written other books also. Um, I don't know how those performed. Timothy Ferris certainly knows his way around the bestsellers list. So I can see what Amazon was doing there, going after someone who has a a big name and I guess, you know, a wide following. Um, The the people who like these sort of like businessy self-help, here is an impossible goal, but you can totally only work for four hours a week Mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing. Um, That is my snarky perception of Timothy Ferris. Yeah, I'm I'm not a huge fan of that whole thing Uh, myself. Yeah, I agree. But I think that, you know, these sort of guru people tend to have avid followings and it makes sense that Amazon might have thought like, well, his his followers, his readers will want to read his next book and and so they'll read it. I'm just giving the impression. Yeah, it's not super... It's not like they landed uh, the new Jonathan Franzen novel or something. Right. Um, That people would have, like, gone out of their way, like, where can I get this book? Right, and And I think, you know, uh, also Amazon seems like the big baddie, but 30% of the market means that the other 70% of books that are sold are not sold by right. Amazon. Yep. And and so if 70% of your potential readers can't get your book <laughs> because Barnes and Noble won't stock it and Indies won't stock it, mm-hmm. um, Walmart and Target also declined to stock the four hour chef, you know, because why, sh- because why Man, should they help Amazon's Amazon? Amazon's got so many enemies. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, this is, uh, you said last week, chickens coming home to roost. And I right. think this is also some chickens coming home. Yeah. To roost, uh, maybe they felt they got to feeling a little too big for their britches. Yeah, uh, man, I I also offer sophisticated metaphors <laughs> early in the morning. <laughs> it is interesting, but that I think it's also telling the imprints they are keeping right. Mm-hmm. Um, the mystery and romance, and that was it. And th- uh, uh, and the uh, forty seven North is their sci fi and sci fi. So genre, mm-hmm. keeping genre, um, which I think is interesting. That yeah, they, they see potential there to you know to there's keep a going. lot of uh, ebook original publishing yeah. happening under those imprints. Uh, the readers, particularly of sci-fi fantasy and of romance, are sort of earlier adopter readers of new technology. Well, I think mystery and thriller. I mean, they often dominate like the Kindle book um, yeah. charts. A lot of mysteries and thrillers um, are out there. So because those people also consume more titles per user, per unit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might be more demand. Um, and if they're shopping for mystery and thrillers on their Kindle anyway, maybe the, you know, Amazon just can slip their things in the recommendation engine. Like the four hour chef, I feel like it's one of those classic things. Like you see it in the airport or you're at Barnes and Noble and it's sitting there on the new releases or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if people like hear about it and like, you know what, I'm going to go out and get that random book. I, it feels like more of an impulse purchase kind mm-hmm. of thing to me. Um, I also wonder how much crossover there is between people who only want to work four hours and people who actually do want to cook 
at all for themselves. <laughs> you know, I want to just wonder if uh, if there's really that kind of uh, crossover as much. But I think this is a really interesting development. Um, and Amazon, Amazon's good at a lot of things, but it historically hasn't been good at taste. And publishing, for whatever you want to say about it, is about taste and um, consumer relations, not just service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, it hasn't worked. Now, who knows? Maybe Larry, this Larry Kirschbaum guy, did a terrible job, and it's more of a cult of personality problem. But it sounds like they're dismantling the machine, of at least of the adult imprints. Yeah. So. And- you know, if we're going to play the game of what's a generous reading of yes, this. Yes, thank one thing you. That, Yay. Okay. All right. <laughs> as long as I don't have to be generous about Jonathan Franzen mm-hmm. today, we're fine. Uh, Amazon is good at recognizing when a thing isn't working and killing yes, the thing. That's true. You know, they they try more new things than anyone else in publishing yeah. tries. And so inevitably when you try new things, some of them are not going to work. And the smart thing to do is to kill the new thing that doesn't mm-hmm. work so that you can move on to trying another new thing that might work. But don't you think uh, that's so, given up a little fast for I mean, especially publishing where like, you know, most books that get published don't do a whole lot. Like I wonder how many bullets they really fired at this. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know. Um, they're always playing things very close to yeah, the vest. Yeah, they don't so tell the, us anything. The frustrating thing about how this gets covered will be that Amazon will probably say very little, and everyone else will say a whole lot, trying to guess about what caused this. Um, I've, I saw indie booksellers already this morning tweeting that they were like high fiving each other for refusing to stock Amazon's titles, and so mm-hmm. certainly like I'll be I'll be bowled over if we don't uh, get some think pieces by booksellers about the impact. Oh my that, god, you know that that's ref- coming. Yeah, that refusing to sell Amazon's books uh, worked, which you know I'm, maybe that was maybe part it of did. it. And, I, I wouldn't be surprised if know, that was part of it. Good job for standing your ground, yeah. then indie booksellers. Well, it doesn't uh, hurt when you, you gotta, don't have to stock a book nobody wants. Right, you've got to draw lines in the sand and, and stand by them. And so if that was part of it, that's great. But the thing is that we're probably never going to know. Yeah. Um, and Amazon might not even know which pieces really had the most yeah. impact, but, uh, and it, this will be interesting. And like, if you read a lot of publishing stuff online, probably kind of maddening <laughs> to follow yeah. as well. I mean, it would be interesting if the, if it was like a top level title that everybody wanted and would Barnes and Noble and indie booksellers and Walmart and Target still like? Mm-hmm. What if it was the new? Um, I'm just trying to think of what would be the best one. Uh, like Suzanne Collins' new YA trilogy that she's apparently working on. Oh right. And Amazon snagged that. I mean, that would be just as a spectator, it would be fascinating <laughs> to watch the the fireworks there. All right, so we'll follow that. If we hear more about it, we'll follow up there. Let, this is a quick infographic. This next thing. We found this week. I I thought it was interesting. Called a brief history of publishing. It, it just gives you some um, scale uh, and, and uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? A perspective. There we yeah. go. <laughs> On the long history of publishing and how you know how long it is and the major developments. But also the thing I noticed about this infographic is how much activity there is in like the last 25 years mm-hmm. on this. Because um, you go from basically 40,000. BCE, you go cave paintings, 3000 BCE, earliest known books in form of clay tablets. 100 BC, I didn't know this. Did you know this one? The earliest bookstores? No. Roman Scriptoria started selling books in 100 BCE, um, which I thought was really interesting. Books the, that looked really different from what yeah, we've been Yeah, really different now. And then, you know, to Gutenberg in four, 1450. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the 20th century... 
and magazines and digital publishing and Google and the web uh, and tablets and ebooks and Amazon just so f- just accelerated so fast. Right. There's you know all those sort of chunks of time on this infographic from forty thousand BCE forward, and yeah. then you, they they block off nineteen twenty five to nineteen sixty seven was when magazine spaces right. exploded, and you know Newsweek, Esquire, Seventeen, Rolling Stone became household names, and then from there it rolls forward through uh, computers. IBM invents the first smartphone in nineteen ninety three. Amazon launched um, in nineteen ninety five, selling just books. Uh, E-Ink technology was created in 1996. Uh, in 1999, Blogger was founded by Google and self-publishing on the internet began. Uh, 1998 was Google. We got Facebook in 2004, becoming right. like a big thing, followed by YouTube, followed by TechCrunch, Mashable, The Huffington Post, Twitter, iPhones, iPads. Uh, and then in 2011, Amazon reporting ebook sales surpassing printed books for the first time. Uh, this is interesting. I'm sort of frustrated that it stops at 2011. Yeah, I know. I was thinking the same thing. Um, and there's not a lot about the business of books. Like it's mostly this mm-hmm. is tech, this is a technology oriented thing. Like when you could print high quality images for the first time became a big deal. When you could affordably publish periodicals, mm-hmm. um, you know, 1899 National Geographic begins publishing, which when you think about it is a really complicated publishing endeavor. Um, yeah. It's got maps and images and a lot photography, of text and yeah. photography. Um, so those, you know, a lot of those things you don't think about as being, you know, relatively recent uh, developments. Um, the camera being invented by Thomas Wedgwood, as we know it, in 1790. The first newspaper. This one is one I didn't know. 1605. Hmm. Um, Germany. This this newspaper called Relation, uh, which was I, I thought is uh, that's a good one to know. So those are the two nuggets I took from this: is fast recently, but also the newspaper and um, the first bookstores. I need to learn more about this, these, these Roman scriptoria. That's, that, that, sounds, that feels like a book riot post, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It sounds really interesting, like the world's first bookstores. Um, surely there are archaeologists and anthropologists oh, and yeah. historians working on on that, and hopefully the internet will turn yeah, up some I interesting stuff. Yeah, I jump if, onto LexisNexis, I can yeah, find something. If you're listening and you know something about these, oh, uh, you can email yes. us podcast at bookriot.com. Send us your nerdy academic papers. Uh, send us <laughs> the things that you dug up in your library. We will stay up Friday nights archive. reading those if you can. We totally will. Uh, we would love to see them. You know, I was, this infographic had me thinking, I was at a conference last week for writers and, uh, and most of them are unpublished writers who are attempting to get their first books out there into the world. And so there's still, there still continues to be a lot of talk about ebook versus print publishing, traditional publishing versus self-publishing. And, uh, you know, I think so much of it just has to do with the fact that books and this infographic lays it out nicely. Books have never changed so much so quickly yeah. as as they've changed in the last decade. I mean, last, maybe the around the printing years. press, right? Like when you go from having to write stuff out by hand to being mm-hmm. able to do a print. I mean, but even so, like it's that was a lot slower. Like it took several decades right, for people to still, have access. It's really expensive. Now right. anybody can, you know, God. Yeah, least. that was a an ability to distribute yeah. like a, a difference. And yes. this is uh, because these technologies are more affordable and accessible. This is sort of an anyone can publish uh, era, and it's. It's been interesting and and to go to conferences and hear writers talk about the things that they don't understand still or the things that are scary to them about it. I think that has a lot to do with it, that things are just changing a lot and they're changing um, really quickly. 
but I think that's really exciting. Yeah, for sure. Totally uh, agree, it's, especially doing what we cool. do and talking about it, not having to do it ourselves right. too much, right? That's <laughs> well, easy. I mean, yeah, we've, we've uh, self-published two books for, yeah. for Book Riot, but it is a different experience. Well, but I think, I mean, than, we're a periodical, I mean, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, um, what a modern periodical can look like. So, well, speaking of recent developments and in publishing, we talked last week about um, Amazon, <laughs> Kobo, and Barnes & Noble, uh, Rebecca's laughing at my skirting of the issue. I'm just putting it <laughs> we, off. We talked about I, I'm, it all. I'm backpedaling before I'm even pedaling. <laughs> I can feel the discomfort radiating yeah. down to Richmond from Brooklyn. <laughs> but, but, but basically that some people had been um, publishing on these retailer self-publishing platforms, uh, erotica that was in some cases illegal uh, about incest and rape and other things like that, underage. And some cases just kind of icky that people don't like to have associated with their brand. And I thought you made really good points about like, it's not censorship. This is about protecting the shield, Mm -hmm. so to speak, and people trusting um, the brand. And what came out of that is uh, a report over at Digital Book World that someone did a study, a sampling study. It's not a complete study. So they took a sample of the titles available um, through self-published retail, uh, where you can get self-published titles. And found that by their estimates, 28.5% of self-published titles are erotica. Hmm. Which, do you find that number high, low, right where you thought? What do you think about that number? You know, I honestly have no idea. No idea. Yeah, I, I felt that. That's why I was asking you. I hope you had something. You had a better sense <laughs> do you, of it. I can pretend. Let me yeah. take it for a minute. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, because the like one of the very big uh, stories that we've heard about self-publishing was about Fifty Shades of Grey, and that is self-published, was originally self-published erotica. Um, we hear about these, and the and erotica is perhaps the genre that the fewest number of people are comfortable talking about publicly. Right. Um, even though we know romance and erotica have a huge readership, it seems like stories about erotica publishing bubble up uh, more frequently than stories about like a self-published thriller, even though those are, are probably performing very well. So I'm not sure if I, if I, if this resonates, this number resonates with me as true, or if I just believe it, because mm-hmm. we talk about so much self-published erotica more than we talk about other self-published uh, genres, that it's like, well, maybe. Uh, yeah, I this, think. Go, uh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I think I don't know if the number is high or low to me, but the number it makes sense that a lot of it is erot- erotica for a lot of the reasons you said. Like people are uncomfortable talking about it, which means that there's sort of a quote-unquote black market for it. Mm-hmm. That is like publishers aren't publishing as much of it as there is maybe demand for. And so as there becomes a new outlet for people to read and and write this stuff, um, that it really burbles up as being, that's a great outlet for people who haven't had a chance to read what they're interested in about this and write what they're interested about this. And I'm very being very careful again, as you can tell. <laughs> yeah, it's I've been reading a lot of romance and erotica in the last year or so um, because I had never really read any before and I wanted to have an understanding of like why so many people are into it and what makes a romance novel good and what makes a romance novel not good. And one thing that I've realized is that maybe a taste in romance and erotica is more idiosyncratic than taste in any other kind of book because it it has these added Hmm. dimensions. Like when I read a literary novel, I'm reading for, for, you know, for the language, for the story, for how well that's all laid out. And those pieces are all important in erotica too, but there's that added dimension of what you find to be arousing and um 
And that varies from person to person to person to person. You know, like I might be able to agree with a friend who reads the same romance novel that the writing is terrific, but we will have different responses to the mm. to the sex scene. So the because, niches are even nichier. Yeah, so to they speak. are yeah. because because we're interested in different things or different things turn us on and and you know sexuality has so many dimensions and is such a personal oh, you're telling and me boy <laughs> i don't know what that means <laughs> no the, the dinosaur stuff i just right, I couldn't right. be more surprised i thought i was having a stroke yeah, when i was reading those articles right. i think that's it, it, there are so many dimensions like the variety of human expression of that yeah. is um it just sort of incalculable in how diverse it is, and so it makes sense to me that there will be more experimentation in the way that sex is written about than in anything else, because it's it's harder to please uh, a, a larger chunk of, of readership, I think. Unless so it's just really fragmented. Right, unless you're painting really broad strokes. Um, man, strokes. <laughs> Careful. Uh, sorry. Keep it clean, lady. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unless you're painting really broad strokes, which is one of my theories about why Fifty Shades of Grey worked the way that it worked, mm. is that uh, the language there is is relatively tame. You can read about a naughty scene without reading sort of like without reading the kind of vocabulary that you would come across in porn. Um, so it felt accessible and safer. So it's safer. like weirdly vanilla BDSM. Somehow. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. Like, right. You get to think about people doing naughty things, but like the body parts are referred to in pretty tame ways for erotica. Um, all the terminology is, is pretty tame. So it's accessible to someone who wants to read about those things, but has not read erotica before or is uncomfortable with like sort of the porn or erotico vocabulary. That's a little bit more explicit. And, right. and so if, th if that works, like if really, if painting really broad strokes and being kind of tame and vague in your language works for reaching a large readership, then I think the opposite end has to be there as well, that the more specific you get, maybe the smaller your readership mm -hmm. is, but you can keep, uh, you can keep going super specific. Yeah, right. um, and self-publishing, your overhead is low and right. you can sell direct to readers and, you know, carve out a little, um, space for yourself. Speaking of people who are uncomfortable um, talking about sex, the New York Times. <laughs> I, uh, let's see, who sent this to us? One of our listeners, Ravina yeah, James Ravina sent this James, out. Ravina James. Ravina. Um, this, you know, I saw this, the, the, the New York Times book review did a sex issue, um, had a bunch of different, well, actually they weren't that different. They had mm -hmm. a bunch of writers talking about sex and writing. Um, and it was pointed out by one of your uh, favorite writers, She's a romance, not erotica writer. Sarah right, McLean she's a romance. romance writer. Sarah McLean writes uh, great Regency romances for Avon. And she pointed out that uh, there were fifteen novelists, none of whom, uh, none of none of who were romance writers, which th she thought was pretty strange. And in hindsight, I think is really strange too, and does show the the, the discomfort that the New York Times even had of, of like trying. They're like trying to tackle this issue without really tackling. It. <laughs> right, like yeah. using tongs on it somehow. Right. And, you know, Ravina um, left this on our Facebook page under the heading Bad Job Old Dudes, which has become Book Riot podcast shorthand right, <laughs> for exactly. uh, grumpy old people of publishing being short-sighted. But the interesting thing here, or maybe a, a more complicated piece of it, is that the New York Times book review is now edited uh, by a woman who came in and said she was going to make changes. They were going to cover um, more types of books that um, are traditionally 
marketed towards women because uh, the New York Times is frequently charged, uh, and I would say rightfully so, rightfully with, so. with being sexist in its coverage and, and skewing towards books written by men and books marketed towards men. Um, but also the New York Times does not pay much attention to uh, to romance and erotica writing. Uh, it's sort of, it, it gets a bad rap as not deserving of, you know, literary uh, literary yeah. analysis or uh, presentation to a large readership. And so Sarah McLean, uh, we'll drop a link to her blog here, but wrote a, an ed- a letter to the editor that they did publish uh, at the New York Times about why this is problematic. Uh, Mm. I was dismayed to see that of the 15 authors asked to discuss writing about sex in the Naughty Bits roundup, none write romance novels, the genre best known for its Naughty Bits. (laughs) (laughs) She's clever and funny, Sarah McLean. That's really, I mean, it's Um, really interesting. Romance holds, yeah, here here we, she's going to drop some numbers on us. Oh, I'm Uh, ready. Yeah, get ready. Romance holds a huge share of the consumer market with more than $1.4 billion in sales in 2012. Uh, So the omission is surprising. The lack of romance authors is especially glaring when one considers that each week the mass market ebook and combined bestseller lists compiled by the New York Times include dozens of books from this far reaching genre, historical, contemporary, paranormal, erotic, and new adult. A romance novelist would have added a special perspective on the questions, why is writing about sex so difficult? And what makes a good sex scene, because writing about sex is a large part of what we do, and our readers, all 75 million of them, expect us to do it well. Sick burn. Yeah. That's a sick burn. And she's right. I think she's right uh, for a lot of reasons. But the thing that it tells you, uh, and I don't think there's any way, uh, this isn't a spin, that the New York Times book review doesn't take romance seriously. I mean, that that's maybe mm-hmm. seems obvious, but to say it out loud, I think just shows kind of how strange it is, especially when we do know that's a huge percentage of, and there's a, it's, it's like she says, it's a huge market. Um, and I don't know that they have a responsibility to, I'm not going to sort of make a moral claim about it, but it's a blindness of the New York Times book review, um, like much genre is. And that's just something they don't get. They just right, don't yeah, get it. They don't they care. Are... They don't think their readers care, which I think are two different things, and I don't mm-hmm. know that they're necessarily correct about that. Perhaps they are. I don't know the readers. Well, I think they're in a feedback loop at this yeah. point with the New York Times book coverage that the, the New York Times is interested in reaching a very particular kind of reader, so they you know, publish information and reviews of the kinds of books that they think that particular kind of reader is interested in, and so then they get people that are interested in those books, and it just sort of runs, you know, in a like Ouroboros. Yeah, it's circle. like it's, it's like a tautological circle of wrong. Like <laughs> New York book yes. review, like we <laughs> write stuff that New York book review readers are interested in because that's what we you write. Know, you know, any one of I, I would wager, you know, any one of Sarah McLean's romance novels or any of the popular and best-selling romance novels that make these lists that she's referring to that are that show up in the New York Times uh, bestsellers, a best-selling romance novel sells like orders of magnitude more copies than a best-selling work of literary fiction. So if you you really are talking about, uh, if you're interested in talking about what kinds of books real people who read books are reading. They're not, Rebecca. I mean, that's what we we know that about them. Right, right. I know. I know. We keep, I mean, I I like bashing on them as much as the next guy, um, which is a lot. Um, But, you know, like it's not their bag. Um, And to expect it to be after all this time is... I don't know if it's wrong-headed, but maybe futile is the word. I'm yeah, you know, for. I don't really, I, I don't think that they have a, a duty to cover anything. Yeah. You know, a publication gets to choose the audience that they seek 
to serve. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like it is fine with me if the New York Times would like to continue ignoring uh, the reading lives of many real readers and just sort of write themselves into irrelevance. That yeah, is totally it's, it's fine with me. good for us. We don't mind yeah. that at all. Carry on. But I'm, I'm happy to see writers who have platforms and audiences addressing the problems and, and yeah. pointing it out to the New York Times that this is problematic. You know, like it's if you want to read some writers being uncomfortable about stuff, like go ahead and read a bunch of literary fiction writers trying to make sense of how to write good sex scenes. Um, One of our writers wrote a piece earlier this week at Book Riot about uh, how terrible the sex writing in Dave Eggers' new novel. Oh, I haven't read the novel, but the post... And was painful. Yeah, and I think it's The Guardian does a, a bad sex writing in fiction award yep. every year, and that usually goes to some dude, literary, some yeah, literary some, dude. Yeah, it's, that's a bad job, old that dude's award terrible, for sure. Terrible job. Uh, you know, so there's there are some things that could, that uh, literary writers could learn from reading some good romance. Uh, and I'm For happy sure. to see a smart lady like Sarah McLean point that out. Also, uh, the stats that she included in her letter were compiled from the Romance Writers of America statistics. So we will drop a link to Sarah's blog into the show notes. And if you go to her blog post, you can then grab the link to the Romance Writers of America and you can have your very own little stat corner. Well, I home. think, I mean, it's telling that I think her post was more interesting in anything of that issue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, you know that's a compliment and a slam uh, to her, a compliment to her and a slam to the to the book review. Okay, let's move on. We got more stats. God, this is just I'm like a pig in slop. Um, readers, uh, reading is good for you. Infographic from the National Reading Campaign and CBC Books up in um, Jolly Old Canada. That's what we call it, right? Jolly Old Canada. Sure. So let me drop some numbers on you. Um, reading for as little as six minutes can reduce stress by 60%. Hmm. Not bad, right? Reading stress reduces... Stress measured how? Slowing your heartbeat and releasing uh, easing of muscle tension. Okay. That's how it's measured. Okay. Uh, similar, um, reading reduces stress 68% more than listening to music, 100% more than drinking a cup of tea, 300% more than going for a walk, and 600% more than playing a video game. Not huh. bad. That is not bad. Um, readers are more likely to help nonprofit organizations. Um, let's see, readers, uh, 82% of readers donate money to nonprofits mm-hmm. compared to 60%, 66% of nonreaders. 42% of readers volunteer compared to 25% of nonreaders. Interesting. How about that? It's all their data from Canadians? This is, this is Canadia. Yes, Canadia. it is. Okay. Canadia. <laughs> um, oh, so Canadia. anyway, let's see. I thought that was pretty interesting. It is interesting. I don't um, know. What about, should we draw, sh- should we think about methodology corner for a second? I think we maybe should. Yeah. Uh, if slowing your heartbeat is a measure of stress, then like going for a walk right, would I was gonna probably say that. elevate your heartbeat and definitely like going for a run or going to the gym would. And well, we talk and about. Well, tea has caffeine like, in it a lot of yeah, times. Yeah. Like it's pretty well known that exercise is a stress reliever and is preventive for depression and anxiety. So this, that might be problematic. Yeah. When did they measure their heartbeat and, and, and I'm muscle curious. Tension? It also says uh, reduce stress by 60%, slow your heartbeat, ease muscle tension, and alter your state of mind. And so I'm really curious <laughs> what about that how, is. what does state of mind mm, and mean alter. here? Right. And uh, like, how do you measure it? Was it just a question of like, how mellow do you feel uh, after your workout or after your walk versus how mellow do you feel uh, from taking 
yeah. uh, a walk or reading a book, like playing a video game. I get like that's a sort of a mental activity and some of them are action packed and could get make you tense and drive your heart rate up. Um, I, I was, you know what I was thinking is like, what other activity would you put on that? Like taking a bath or something or yeah, and I don't like know. listening to music. It would totally depend on what kind of music. It does seem like, that way. Uh, are we talking Enya or like ludicrous? Well, and I was also <laughs> thinking what kind of, they're all books. I yeah. mean, they're all the same. Right. If you're reading erotica and your heartbeat is slowing, you might be doing it wrong. <laughs> well, Hey, uh, whatever boat you want to, <laughs> whatever boat you want a boat metaphor. <laughs> My Whatever favorite. boat metaphor just, you want a boat I metaphor. I just love it when I can't, I'm very uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't like any of this. I'm very upset. I'm, I'm, you know, you know whose heart rate is not going down. Mine right now. <laughs> I am so not. Yeah, sorry. but you know what? 100 percent of readers like that infographic. Uh, I will tell you that. We'll drop the link in the show notes there. You can check it out. Okay, let's do birthdays. Man, we got we got more stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly, John Keats, born October 31st, 1795, in London. So he's a Halloween baby. Um, John Keats, if you know any, a a poet, an English poet, best known for Ode to a Nightingale, Ode on a Grecian Urn, um, he died of tuberculosis, uh, always had trouble with money and his family had trouble with money too. And uh, a lot of his family members died of tuberculosis and it's widely speculated that he contracted TB while caring for his sibling who had TB. Um, and my fact about him is sad and that is that he actually had inheritances, um, from family members who had died, but he never found out about them hmm. um, because the legal and communication system, as you might expect in mid 18th century England, wasn't as good as it was today. It was kind of hard to find people if they moved around, um, and so he had two inheritances that were never claimed by him, um, and that would have radically altered his financial situation, his living situation, presumably that of those he cared about. Wow! Um, so that's a, that's that's missed mail. Changing literary history. Now they would what like email you and you would think it was spam coming from a Nigerian Nigerian prince that wanted to offer you money. I I guess when the lawyer showed up with uh, a check, maybe you'd be a little uh, more credulous about the situation. But that's a little wrinkle um, for Keats fans and poetry fans. You know, he died spectacularly young and really had only been writing and publishing poetry for about four years when he died. And it's um, tantalizing to think what another two decades Mm. or more of Keats um, would have yielded. So that's a, that's a what if for you today. Other one, Ann Tyler, who we were talking about yesterday a little bit, who I read The Accidental Tourist a long time ago and have largely forgotten. And I think the movie version has subsumed the reading experience in my mind. Um, but I, I would put her on the short list of most underrated contemporary American writers. She's got a National Book Critics Circle Award. She's got a Penn Faulkner Award. She's mm-hmm. got a Pulitzer. And you haven't read her. I've only read one. A lot of our people haven't read her, uh, asked around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyway, so she was born uh, October 25th, 1941 in Minneapolis. I'm just putting together that six weeks after D-Day, excuse me, uh, Pearl Harbor. Mm. Um, Anyway, and my fact about her is for the first 11 years of her life, she moved around from Quaker community to Quaker community um, and didn't enroll in formal school until she was 11. Wow. And then she caught up dang fast because by the age of 19, she'd already graduated from Duke. Oh, boy. So she is Good not job, dumb. Good job, Tyler. <laughs> and Tyler, not dumb, uh, as far as we can tell. Um, so if you're looking for titles, um, she considers her best work um, Dinner at the Homesick Restaurant, hmm. which was a finalist for both the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award in 1983. Um, the Accidental Tourist did win the National Book Critics Circle Award in 85. 
and she won um, the Pulitzer in 89 for breathing lessons. So if eight you're interested in years, checking, eight years to go from no education to graduating from yeah, Duke. it doesn't say. And she is also um, she's not a recluse, but she doesn't give interviews. So that's one reason that I think we she's underrated. Probably she's not mm-hmm. out there um, talking about herself, and she does interviews very infrequently. Um, so it's just not she's just not out there. Uh, well, consider my interest. Pete. I know I'm going to go. I'm maybe I'm. It's still my summer of ketchup. Is it summertime yet? It is definitely not Darn summer. It. I think I'm still you might be. Ketchup. You're in the year of ketchup. Yeah, I'm in the year of ketchup. Point. But I'm going to go back and I'm going to read breathing. Le- or you know what? Maybe I'm going to read dinner at the homesick restaurant. When the author says that's their. It's a their really best. intriguing title too. Yeah, yeah, it is. So anyway, those are birthdays. So happy birthday to Ann Tyler and John Keats this week. Uh, let's Very do nice. a sponsor. It's Squarespace, Squarespace again. again. Squarespace again. And in a development, I, I sort of asked for offhandedly, but uh, we had someone else send us their Squarespace site. Cool. Um, and this is outlawreading.squarespace.com. Chelsea Outlaw, who comments on the site, is a big fan of us, and we're a big fan of her, um, has a Squarespace book blog. And it, it didn't occur to me, because I'm an idiot, that we've got a lot of writers and book bloggers that listen to the show. And that Squarespace <laughs> is a natural for all of you, every single one of you. Um, Beautiful templates that you can customize, uh, great customer support, responsive designs, which means if someone opens it on a laptop, it looks great. Open on your phone, looks great. Opens on your iPad or other tablet, it looks great. Got a lot of really modern-looking fonts, modern-looking layouts, simple, beautiful design, great with photos. Um, One thing I don't think I've talked about before that's especially good for writers um, and that want to sell some of their own work Squarespace has e-commerce built into the site. Um, mm-hmm. So you can put something up for sale. They'll handle the, the payment processing for you. Um, and that's no extra charge to the, the, the service, which starts at $8 a month, which is a heck of a deal, I've got to say. Um, it's, as easy, it's easier to use than any other um, blogging platform I've used. You can also use it for a variety of other portfolios, restaurant websites, small business websites, really good, mm-hmm. easy to update and manage. Handles um, images really well. Really Outlaw great. Reading has a bunch of book covers on it, and she uses GIFs in her reviews, and it, it's just really pretty. Squarespace really pretty. handles those images really beautifully. Um, 24-7 customer support. If you've got a problem, they can help you out. It's 8 bucks a month, so it's not free like some other platforms are, but you get what you pay for, and that's a lot with Squarespace. So go to squarespace.com slash riot, and you can get a free trial, 14-day free trial. You don't have to enter a credit card, just your email address. He'll set you up with a site. Um, and you can play around with it. And I, and I think, I really think if you're looking for a new site and you play around with a Squarespace site for a couple hours, some Friday night when you're listening to music or maybe this podcast, even maybe you listen to the podcast, play around with Squarespace, check it out. I think your web publishing life will be a heck of a lot easier if you check it out. So thanks so much to Squarespace for supporting the show. Um, and go to squarespace.com slash right. If you do check it out, that lets them know that you came from us and that they'll maybe sponsor the show again in the future. So check that out. And thank you, Chelsea, for sending us your website. It looks great. Good luck with it. So you ready to talk about some new books and new book drama? New book drama. Yeah, let's do Ooh, it. Oh, hey. Yeah, new corner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. New, book, new dra- book drama. Book drama. That's so, what you rename uh, the show. The third and final installment in a very popular trilogy. That you, You've been reading these. I I'm in the yet. middle of the um, last one right now. 
Right. So uh, this is Veronica Roth's Divergent trilogy, and the final installment is called Allegiant, and it came out on Tuesday this week. Uh, new books typically come out on Tuesdays for reasons that are unknown to us. We if you happen to know that. why you know or why, what the history of that is, know. please tell us. Uh, so Allegiant came out, and um, readers ordered it uh, in just huge droves. Just uh, ginormous, it, mind-boggling numbers. It outsold um, the final installment of the Hunger Games series f- like by five times. Uh, on Amazon on that, like, I guess in pre-orders and on first day mm-hmm. uh, pu- um, purchases of the Kindle book. Um, however, Amazon measures that Allegiant sold five times as many copies on that first day as Mockingjay sold, which might also have something to do with the fact that Mockingjay came out a couple of years ago and Kindles weren't as big and, you know, confounding yeah, right. factors. Yeah, confounding factors, whatever. corner. <laughs> right. And so Allegiant is out. You know what? Methodology corner gets its own room. It's no longer a corner, you know? It's, it's like a whole. It is a whole room, and we got house. like a it's whole true. floor in the Book Riot podcast house. Okay, uh, Allegiant came out, and uh, readers like took the day off work and stayed up all night long that night reading it, and then oh boy, they got mad. They got the the, the ending. They got mad about, it. and we're not going to say more about that. Um, I've avoided the spoilers for what happens, but it makes hardcore readers mad. You can probably guess what the possibilities are, but and boy, they took to the streets, and by the streets, I mean Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, you know, and to Amazon, and a, to a Amazon, huge yeah. chunk of the reviews oh, you know for this what? book on Amazon are one and zero that. star reviews. Um, Kit Steinkellner, who's one of our writers at Book Riot, did a piece that I think that came out yesterday yep, called "Hell Hath No Fury Like a Superfan Scorned," and she dropped some stats in there as well. But uh, uh, people are not happy here, and they are voicing. They're upset to the author uh, on Twitter, but also by uh, dropping negative reviews on Amazon, and I would imagine on Goodreads as well. Yeah, and so there's sort of two pieces. One is like some a very small nut job fringe are like making threats, right? And come mm-hmm. on, like I don't even think that's. I mean, it's worth talking about insofar as to say, remember everyone that like words are real, and that's a not cool at all, and you are not cool for doing it, and no one cares that you care that much to be. Um, nuts about it and um, offensive. But the other piece, and this is, I guess, more interesting to me personally, because it's more of like a philosophical point is like, Mm. you know, does a writer, what, if anything, does a writer owe to the reader? What, if anything, does a reader owe to the writer uh, of a series they're a fan about? Um, And, you know, I'm not sure, like, I'm not going to be one that says reader, I'm not going to be a totalitarian on either side, like the writer can do whatever they want. And readers should just shut up about it. Um, nor am I going to be to the reader is the consumer and the consumer is always right and you've got to please them. It's a really nettlesome problem um, that I think is probably a more recent development because of the popularity of series like this um, Hmm. that have a narrative arc that's over after three books as opposed to sort of, you know, Miss Marple books where it's an iterative or Jack Reacher or something like that where the, Mm -hmm. the character, it's not part of an overall plan. Um, you know, Hunger Games, uh, Harry, Harry Potter. Potter, big ones. Um, a lot of other. You know, you go look for the top, the most, the most widely read YA books on Goodreads, and so many of them are part of a series. Um, that it's different, I guess, if it's one book and it ends. Boy, it's hard to. I, I'm just going to guess that it ends in a way you didn't want it to. That makes you sad or unhappy. Um, versus if you read two books and you're emotionally invested in what happens and the characters' fates, um, then maybe you want a happier ending or a more satisfying ending or a more conclusive ending. You no, know, I think it's really you want the ending that you want. 
And but that's not – so you're saying that's more true – you think that's more true of series than of uh, – what can we spoil? Um, Romeo and Juliet, right? Yeah, well, like I if you if you coming to Romeo and Juliet for the first time, don't you want them both to live and be happily ever happy yeah. ever after? I mean, so let's talk about other confounding factors. Yeah, okay. Here, the this book is coming out at a time when readers have never been so connected to each other, ah, and yes. when readers have never had so much access. to Oh, authors. so if you say Twitter was around in 1599 at the floor of the Globe Theater. All the penny, the penny uh, entrance would be like. Or, I can't believe this this Will Shakespeare killed these kids. Or if Twitter was what it was, if Twitter three years ago were were what it what it is now, and if Suzanne Collins had been active on it the way mm. that Veronica Roth is active on it. Yeah, because people um, didn't like Mockingjay. People did not like. I, did I not did. like Mockingjay. I did. I, um, I did like it. I threw it against the wall when okay. I finished reading yeah, it in the middle enough. of the night. Um, well, I, I mean, you're wrong, but no big. She deal. might have seen the same kinds of things yeah. if the Harry. Potter books had ended differently right. and J.K. Rowling were on Twitter, we would have seen the same kinds of things. And so there's there are all these like sort of interesting, hairy, complicating matters to it that um, that readers are, who love these books can form communities around them. And something about having that community of other people who also love the book, plus having access to the author mm. in a way that you've never had access to authors uh, historically before um, makes fans feel uh, even more invested in these books that they love and, and maybe more like the author owes them something or, or should write the ending that the fans wanted. So it raises that. So, so you uh, think I mean, you're saying that you think the density of the passion maybe was always there, just we couldn't hear about it before. Yeah, I think that's a pe- that's a piece of it for mm. sure. Um, it's that it, it's an age old question about art and and to whom right. does the artist owe uh, allegiance? No. <laughs> oh. oh, I did not do that on purpose. I'm oh, I gotta really shut sorry. this show down. I know. I'm sorry. Okay. I'll hold out my wrist and you I, can. Stop I kind of liked it actually. <laughs> Um, and it, I, I see how that glossed over. I said ironic, and it wasn't actually ironic, but oh, you I didn't just, get to point go. out that it, it wasn't I was still ironic. reeling from the terrible pun. Yeah, I know. I'm really sorry about that <laughs> one. Uh, um, now, uh, that is it Veronica Roth's job to write something uh, that will have commercial appeal? Is it her job to write something that her fans will like? Or is it her job just to write the story that she believes makes the best story to just make good art and put it out there into the world and, and then let what, whatever's going to happen, happen to it. You know, we, yeah. the same thing happens to George R. R. Martin. People are mad at him all the time for, mm-hmm. uh, for choices that he makes about his characters. And, and he's pretty good at like, well, I'm just going to do the thing that, right. that Boy, I we're in a minefield of spoilers. We're just, Sort of tiptoeing around everything. <laughs> I know we're trying so hard to keep you from uh, hearing something you guys don't yeah, want to hear. About. It's, anyway, that's an interesting and hairy subject, and uh, I think it's interesting to hear from readers too about about yeah. where they think that line. The comments exists. on Kit's post were pretty interesting and thoughtful, um, by and large. Um, a lot of good responses there. I mean, I'm a, I'm usually in the the camp of I want the writer to write what they think the story can be, but I also think there are. Um, I will spoil one, Pincher Martin, William Golding, so it's 40 years old now, so sorry, guys. Like, it's a guy who survives a a disaster, and he's floating around in the ocean, and he's trying to survive, and he he dies at the end, but then at the end, you get a little hint that he actually died on, you know, within, like, five minutes, and the whole book was a hallucination. Like, there's something about that that feels icky to me. Mm -hmm. Um. And I guess if I really tried to parse it, I could come up with some premises that would lead me to that way. If, you know, if, if like, say, the, the third book of Allegiant, like, halfway through it started, it was in French, 
right. Or so, you know, you can, you can mm-hmm. imagine situations that we wouldn't say were all right. Um, but, you know, other than that, it's hard to imagine that. On the other hand, you're writing for money and a bunch of people have bought the book um, and are going to buy the book. It, it's tough. I think it's really tough. The, well, it's more a, of a, a commercial. You know, it's all yeah. art isn't just existing well, in a vacuum. It's commercial. And a bunch of people are now trying to return the book because they read the whole thing and they didn't like it. I think like that's it. bogus. I do think that's bogus. <laughs> it is I will bogus. say that's bogus. <laughs> you, it's uh, Somebody made the comparison that uh, online that, you know, you can send your meal back after you take one or two bites if it's not good, but you can't clean your plate yeah. and then send your meal back. And that's, I, think I guess the, the difference to here. that would be that you don't know that the book is not what you wanted until the end, whereas probably the first bite of your yeah. bad risotto. That's you have the a, risk you take, That's man. the risk you take. All right. So that's right, follow gonna, that. Do new books. Yeah, so that's new this week. We're going to do, do the rest of uh, new books for this week. And then I think we might just have to tease our other stories yeah, I know. We're uh, running out of for time. next week. We're running over. So a big, big book uh, came out this week. We, we are in the full swing of the fall publishing season. I think this is it. it this is October twenty second, the, the white hot center of the fall publishing season. Yep, uh, the Goldfinch by Donna Tart, which, which is, is her the first... allegiant of literary fiction. Yeah, totally. Right? Uh, it's been like since it was announced, uh, I guess back in the spring that this book was coming out this fall. People have just been waiting really anxiously. One of the most anticipated releases of the year, if not the most anticipated. Uh, Donna Tart wrote the Secret History, was her debut novel, came out in the mid nineties. Uh, we both love it. Love it. Uh, uh, it's an incredible, creepy, dark story. And then uh, she had another novel called The Little Friend uh, about a decade ago. This is her first book in many, many years, and it's about um, uh, a young boy who is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art with his mother when a bomb goes off and something, you know, his mother dies. Uh, something happens with him and this painting of a goldfinch that changes his life. And so this book, all like more than 700 pages of it are about what happens, what happens to him uh, because of this one moment and this work of art that he um, has a complicated relationship with. It follows him through the next couple of decades. He ends up all over the world. Uh, there's a revolving cast of really interesting characters. And, you know, for, you know it's, it's hard to write a 700 and more than 700 page book that's perfect. And this one is not perfect, but it's pretty darn close, mm. I think. Uh, and I read it really quickly. I read a galley and I read it faster than I anticipated to read a book that is that long. Donna Tart uh, knows some things about pacing and about compelling a reader through a story. And um, the reviews have been off the man, chain. It's pretty masterful. I'm. I think it's. I'm looking uh, forward to it. It's. It's happy when a book that is this anticipated comes out and is as good as everyone hopes that it would be. And I, I think The Goldfinch really, really is. You know, she's welcome to keep taking a decade in between yeah. novels if they continue to be this good. Yeah. Uh, and another new release this week that's one of my um, one of my personal favorite writers is Reality Boy by A.S. King. She writes, uh, I think, really incredible young adult fiction that tackles real issues um, but always has some sort of surreal element to it. And Reality Boy, uh, the main character is in his late teens. But when he was a kid, his parents took him and his uh, sister on one of those like nanny reality shows about parenting, you know, like the super nanny type thing. And he did some really embarrassing things on this show because he was young and kids do embarrassing things. But uh, most of us don't have it documented for the rest of the world. So now that he's 17 uh, and all of his friends, everyone who knows him, have, has seen these episodes of him doing embarrassing things as a child. That's sort of all 
all people know of him. And he is mad. He's mm. really mad at his parents um, that this is how his life has been shaped. Uh, and it's a really interesting, you know, sort of look at media and at what uh, what it would be like to have your life broadcast that way so that everyone can see your mistakes from when you were really young and, and for you to be cast in that light, but also sort of what it is, uh, what it's like for teens now when their every mistake, whether you're on TV or not, your every mistake can be documented with, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and uh, whatever else the kids these days <laughs> are using. Uh, I think A.S. King asks really smart questions um, about what uh, the lives of young adults are like, and it's just great, edgy writing, and that's out this week as well. I got one. I dropped one in, too. Um, so nonfiction. This book is called Provence 1970 by Luke Barr, um, and it is about a um, period of time, just a few weeks long, uh, in 1970 um, in Provence in France, when some of the great taste-making culinary stars of the day um, somewhat randomly found themselves all vacationing and living in the same place. Julia Child, MFK Fisher, James Beard, Simone Beck, Judith Jones, and others – um, talk. They, you know, they they started hanging out and cooked for each other. They ate together. They talked, you know, long into the night, arguing about technique and where the future of food was and what the right way and the wrong way to be a snob and a fan um, about food was. And apparently, they all came away with it reinvigorated, um, rejuvenated, and um, revising their ideas hmm. about how to think about food and especially for American food culture. Um, and so what happened is that uh, MFK Fisher, her great-grandson, discovered her – a great-grandnephew, excuse me, discovered her journals and letters. Um, and that's Luke Barr. That's MFK uh, Fisher's great-grandnephew with the author of this book. So he used these to recreate uh, in prose this time and what happened and what they talked about and what they ate. And, you know, in, in the way great food writing talks about food in sensuous detail, mm -hmm. but also their ideology of food that sort of moved from Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking to the art of simple food kind of way of thinking about the world. I'm so, going to read this book so hard. Yeah, so you're going to read the heck out of it. There's going to be no heck left in this book after you're nope. done reading it. Um, and I'm not much of a foodie, but I think it's – I like books that are about kind of a – seminal moment um, of people talking about an idea and then it, it, it changing the way it works. So um, that's Provence 1970. I think that would be a pretty good holiday book gift for people in your life that like oh, sound yeah. right. Sound yeah, like, I, I yeah, think good so. For the for people that. in your life. We, we got care. a gift book show coming up, so I'm not going to step on it, except that I did uh, a little bit. <laughs> a little. I mean, just a little. The people just in your life that care about about food and unlike you're saying also that care about a turning point yeah. uh, for an idea. There's a, a new book. Uh, I think it comes out next week or in the, in the next couple of weeks uh, called anything that moves. That's a contemporary look at, at how foodism came to be equated mm. with being willing to try anything. And those two together ah, might, might be a really interesting pair. That is interesting. Pair. That's 1970 really good. 1970 to 2013, 2014. It's really interesting. And those are the new books. I think we better end it there, huh? I think we should. Where can the people find us, Jeff? Well, they can find show notes for this show, so links to everything we talked about, the titles of the books we talked about today, um, at 
bookread.com slash podcast. You can find this and other uh, previous episodes of the show there. You can email us if you got feedback. Um, you know something about the history of publishing. You know something about something we talked about. We got something wrong. I don't know what we got wrong this week. I'm very excited to find out what we got wrong. Yeah, I'm sure there's something. Uh, you can email us podcast at bookriot.com. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Reading Ape. She is at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can find our quarterly box, quarterly.co slash bookriot. Is that correct? Slash products. Slash products. And we're right there. You'll we are see right there, big, front and center. Our, our black and yellow, uh, yellow jacket looking sort of uh, logo there. You can find us. Um, what else? You do can review the show oh, on yeah. iTunes if you if you like it. We would really appreciate that. It helps other listeners to find the show. Uh, you can do a star rating, and if you feel like it, you can write a prose review. Uh, let us know. Let other listeners know what you like about the show. If you have feedback about things uh, that we could change, you can do that as well. Uh, we read all those reviews, and we're uh, very interested in in what you guys uh, think about what we're doing, what ideas that you have that might make the show better. So please uh, give us an iTunes review. Let us know. And I, I, I got one more. It. I got one more. Oh, you got one, one more. more. Hit me. Well, I just teased the gift book show. And if mm. we're going to do a, a special show um, that'll release over Thanksgiving weekend where we give you some holiday picks. But if you have someone you're shopping for, you know, and we can help you. Tell us what they like, what kind of person they are, what you think they might like, and we'll try to we'll try to pick some um, and do some specific recs. If that person is you, that is okay too. We won't tell yeah, anybody. You can totally do that. And and I mean, since we're talking now about sending in requests, we have a new feature at BookRiot.com that I just think is cool uh, called Dear Book Nerd. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, where one of our contributors is sort of it's an, an advice column for the reading life. And so uh, if you have a question about your reading life, about how to handle other readers. Uh, anything you know you can uh, pop over look on the site for dear book nerd you can submit your question and if it is selected then our uh, resident advice giver Rita Mead uh, will let you know and we'll write a response to it the first installment the question that she answered was what to do if you're the only person in your family that loves reading and I thought it was a great piece and today's piece is my girlfriend never read the book I gave her oh oh Mm -hmm. awkward oh I'm deliciously uh, awkward Come deliciously awkward is like what we do. That's our <laughs> that's new tagline. Right, that's right, new tagline. <laughs> Bookriot.com, deliciously, deliciously awkward. awkward about books. Uh, so come find us online. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you're reading and who you're trying to shop for. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Yep. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Bye. Bye.